0: Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best selling book, Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by ICON Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence, the icon school of medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This is the Science Podcast for June 10th, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. First up, contributing news correspondent Kai Kupferschmidt. We discuss how two decades after it disappeared from nature, the stunning blue spix macaw will be reintroduced to its forest home. And in an interview from the AAAS Annual Meeting, producer Megan Cantwell talks with researcher Varun Rai about how to prepare energy grids to weather extreme events and climate change. The Spix macaw was first described in 1819. 200 years later, they had basically been poached to extinction in the wild. Now collectors and conservationists and biologists are working together to reintroduce them into the wild. Kai Kupfer-Schmidt is a news correspondent for Science. We're going to talk about the possible recovery of this highly coveted and endangered bird. What drew your attention to this bird in the first place? Is it because you wrote a book about the color blue and the Spix macaw is a blue bird?
1: Yeah, you got me, of course. Uh, I mean, <laughs> people who know me know that I love the color blue and that I'm fascinated by it. And like you say, I wrote this book about the color blue in nature and why it's rare. I think that's one of the things about the Spix macaw that probably also led to its extinction is the fact that the bird is rare and, and it's probably very coveted because of this rare color. When I wrote the book, I wanted to show on the one hand that we're losing these amazing colors from nature, you know, all of these hues that are there because we're destroying animals' habitats and we're poaching them to extinction. But then I didn't want the end to be so depressing. And the Spix macaw had this positive spin in a way because breeders and conservationists have managed to breed it in captivity. And there has been this plan for a long time now to release some captive birds into the wild, hoping that they will then build up a new flock of Spix macaws in the wild.
0: There were very few living in the wild for a long time and now none. Where were they living? What part of the world were they living in and where will they be reintroduced?
1: This is a very specific part of Brazil where they are native. There's a biome called the Katinga, which is kind of a dry tropical forest. So Katinga actually means white forest in the native language there. The bird from the beginning seems to have been specialized in living in, in this very specific area with these large currybera trees, which grow on the side of creeks that go through the Katinga. When it was first described in 1819, it already appeared to be quite rare. People have looked everywhere for spix macaws, and, and it appears that this is the only place where they really live.
0: How many are alive today? Do we know the size of the population that's being held in captivity?
1: The exact numbers keep changing, of course. Right. In the beginning, there were individual breeders who had a few birds. And of course, in order for the birds to recover and also to have genetic diversity, you really needed to bring together these different birds from different breeders. And that was one of the big, big problems nowadays. Most of them are actually close to where I'm sitting now in Berlin. They're just outside of Berlin in a facility by an NGO called ACTP, Association for the Conservation of Threatened Parrots. And they have about 170 birds in their facility now. Oh, wow. And then 52 birds were flown over to Brazil at the beginning of the pandemic in March 2020. These birds are now very close to where they used to live in the Catinga, in another facility that was built there being prepared there for release into the wild.
0: The first thing I heard about this story was that it was going to be very difficult to get images. <laughs> <laughs> there is something going on in the background where assets are closely held, birds are closely held. What What's going on here? Why is it this tense situation behind the scenes?
1: You know, I think the world of parrot breeders and collectors is a very interesting world, and I didn't know anything about it before. What became clear very fast was that there were all of these larger-than-life characters. So for a long time, for instance, I think 90% of all the Spix that were known at the time were owned by the Sheikh of Qatar in his wildlife preserve in Qatar called Alwabra. And so these birds have always been jealously guarded, I would say, by their owners, I mean, obviously, there are no birds left in nature, so there's no images from that. There's been a lot of jealousy in the program in general with different people wanting to get the credit for reintroducing the birds. One of the people I talked to, a geneticist in Brazil, she said it's always very political when it comes to these rare animals. And the rarer the animal, the more political it gets. And I think this is an example of that.
0: There's a great quote in your story about how basically everybody sitting at a table discussing the future of the Spix Macaw has a history of almost criminality. I wouldn't say explicitly crime, but that you basically have had to have stolen this bird at some point in order to have it in your possession.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is the other issue, right? Since most of these birds were taken from the wild illegally in the beginning. Of course, people also didn't want to admit that they had any spicks The Brazilian government at some point agreed to an amnesty for owners if they came forward and agreed to let their birds participate in the breeding program. But on some level from the very beginning, because of this, it was difficult to get people to be open about their birds. And then it attracts a certain type of character. I think that also didn't make things easier. I looked at the notes from that meeting and the Brazilian researcher who kind of led it, Camilo Lugarini, she put up a slide at the beginning of the meeting where she basically said, you know, remember, we're here to save the spix and let's try and be civil. <laughs> and, and that meeting, she says, was a complete disaster in some ways because people really weren't very civil. So it was a very long road to get to where we are now, where these birds are going to be released.
0: Right. Let's talk a little bit about the biological hurdles. So we talked kind of about the collectors and the jealousy and the secrecy, but actually breeding parents for diversity to kind of widen the gene pool is not an easy thing to do.
1: I was actually surprised how difficult it is in some ways. The first hurdle is getting different birds with slightly different genetics together, but it's a little bit like with humans. You can't just put two humans together <laughs> and expect them to, uh, to produce offspring. I mean, parrots are very choosy, they're monogamous. So in the beginning, even when they had the genetics and they could tell, okay, this would be a good match, it was very difficult to get the birds together. So very often the females would lay eggs, but then they weren't fertilized. And so you ended up, I think out of hundreds of eggs, only a few dozen actually led to chicks hatching. So that was one hurdle that they had to overcome. And the way that it did that was to develop artificial insemination. Interestingly, artificial insemination for birds has been known for a very long time, but it turns out that in parrots, the technique that was usually used didn't work. There's a German research team that came up with this new method, which basically uses a little probe that stimulates the bird electrically, and then it releases the sperm, and that's collected by the probe. And then you can use that to inseminate the female. So when the female lays an egg, it's roughly the right time to fertilize the next egg, And so as soon as they would see, you know, a female lay an egg, they would go and try to collect semen from the best genetic matches that they had available and then inseminate the female with that.
0: You're on a timer. Yes. It's a very tight timeline. That's so amazing. And they were able to successfully diversify the gene pool, get a large enough population to plan a release into the wild. So some birds have been moved from Germany to Brazil and now they're at the edge of the place where they're going to be released. What happens next?
1: So in some ways all those hurdles that had to be overcome in the last decades to even get to this place were just the first step. Releasing birds, it's been tried a lot of times, you know, often it failed miserably, sometimes it actually worked. Well, but remember, there's no birds in nature out in the wild anymore that could, for instance, teach the new spicks that are released how to navigate the terrain, how to find food, all of these things.
0: Yeah. We should remember, these are parrots. They're brilliant animals. They're very good at learning, but they need tutors.
1: Exactly. And they've all been raised in captivity. Over time, some of their instincts might have gotten lost. So that's one of the big questions now is when these birds are released, will they know what to do? The researchers in this program came up with an interesting idea. There's another bird that also lives in the Katinga, another parrot called an Illigus macaw. They basically nest in the same tree. They eat similar food. What they decided to do was to capture a few of these birds from nature, put them into captivity with the Spix macaws that they're going to release. So they're flocking together in this huge aviary at the moment. And then when they release them, the hope is that they will all together join up with the wild illigous macaws. It actually does two things. So first of all, the spix macaws might that way have mentors, so to speak, in nature that can help them a little bit. And it drives up the numbers a little bit. If you just release a few individuals, the danger for each of them is much higher than if you have a larger group, partly because you know they can cooperate. It's also easier to find a mate. If it's a bigger, bigger group, they can warn each other of dangers. So putting the Illegas macaws together with the Spix macaws takes care of both of these problems. At least that's the idea. It hasn't been tried before. So that is one of the things that people will be watching very closely, whether this works.
0: That's very interesting. It sounds like a movie. We're like, oh, we'll make them make friends and yes. then they'll go and help each other in the wild. But they also did a study of past releases to try to figure out what were the key factors for success or failure when animals have been released in the wild or specifically birds. What are some of the things they decided to focus on there?
1: Two of the factors that clearly play a role are the ones that I just mentioned. So the number of individuals that are released together and whether they've been captured from the wild or whether they were reared in captivity. But really the biggest single determinant of whether release works or not, at least in that study, was the question of predators. So how many predators are out there that pose a danger? In the case of the spix macaws, that is quite an issue. So there are some birds of prey out there. There's also snakes and there's opossums. The trees where the illigous macaws are likely to nest will all have a metal band wrapped around the base of the trunk that should at least keep some of the predators away. Of course... Humans are also a potential predator, poachers. Right. So these metal bands will also actually be put around other trees where the iligas aren't nesting, just to kind of throw off any poachers that might come. Yeah, and the hope is that these things together are going to help them. A call, of course. The biggest question, in some ways, is: Can you put a bird back into nature when its nature is not really there anymore? In a way, its habitat. So the katinga is a very degraded habitat. It's been parceled into all of these little farms over the years. There's lots of goats that eat the small curry bearer trees. So there's also not a lot of the curry bearer trees left. In the end, all the people I talked to said, look, there's all of these things that are working against us. But really, at this point in time, we just have to make sure that we try to put some of these birds out into nature. And to some extent, we have to hope for the best.
0: Is there an effort to protect this environment going forward to make sure that it doesn't go away and then the birds are not able to survive?
1: There is an effort ongoing to restore at least parts of the Katinga. So the immediate area where the spix is going to be released has been turned into a natural reserve. One of the issues here is that getting the Katinga back into its old state isn't so easy, partly because we know way less about the Katinga than we know about other biomes, and partly because it is a dry tropical forest. So you can't just put a Caribera tree there and hope that it grows. It really has to go through different stages. That has been going on. There's a lot of planting going on at the moment. And really, these things are going in parallel. And the hope is that for these first birds, there is enough of a habitat there for them to establish themselves. And then hopefully over time, as the Katinga recovers a little bit, the spix will also have more and more habitat to inhabit.
0: So here we are, we're recording this for release on, it'll come out on June 9th, 2022. That's just a few days before the actual release.
1: The big day is June 11th, and everybody I talk to at the moment is extremely anxious. To give some backstory here, when the last spix was in the wild, there was only one male left that was known in the wild in the 90s. And so in 1995, One single female was released in the hope that it would pair with the Spix macaw. And the release in the beginning actually went really well. The bird seemed to get used to the habitat very quickly. It flew farther and farther and it actually managed to avoid an attack by a falcon. It actually ended up pairing with that last male. But then two weeks later, it just disappeared. And it's not quite clear what happened to it. This is 27 years ago, but the memory is still pretty fresh in the minds of many of the people involved in this project. Everybody's very aware that things like this can happen. And so there'll be a moment of celebration on June 11th when these birds hopefully fly out into the wild. But it'll just become another level of anxiety, I guess, for the conservationists about how these birds are going to do. You
0: know, I wonder, it was poached or collected because it was blue? Because this is just one bird among so many that are going away, that are extinct in the wild. Is this being preserved, conserved and released because it's blue.
1: I'm not sure that it's so much the color as the fact that this is, you know, a very striking parrot. It's a big animal.
0: Beautiful. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's two animated movies, Rio and Rio 2, that are basically based on the Spix macaw. That sad story of the last male really struck a chord with many people. So it's become this flagship species in a way. And of course, a lot of the conservationists I talk to have mixed feelings about that because to a lot of them, the Spix macaw is no more important than some rare beetle or any other species that's threatened. But a lot of the people I talk to say, well, this is a chance for us to use this flagship species to make sure the Katinga is also restored, to show that this can be done. And then hopefully a lot of other species are going to profit from it as well. So they're being quite pragmatic about it, I think. It's certainly, you know, the fact that it's a beautiful animal, even if it's hard to get photos of it, it certainly makes it easier, I think, to capture people's imagination with it.
0: Wonderful. All right. Thank you so much, Kai.
1: Thanks, Sarah. Always a pleasure.
0: Kai Kuferschmidt is a contributing correspondent for Science based in Berlin, Germany. When he's not covering epidemiology, public health, all things COVID, now monkeypox, he writes about the color blue. Stay tuned for Megan's interview with Varun Rai about lessons learned from Texas's major power crisis in 2021 from the AAAS annual meeting. Researchers at Queen's University Belfast translate research into action and make sense of a rapidly changing world. They keep up with technological, societal, and economic advances and drive change through collaboration and real-world partnerships. Their research leads to critical breakthroughs in areas such as green technology, food and agricultural sustainability, peace-building, and healthcare. Queen's University Belfast Network of International Researchers has a reputation for global excellence. Over 99% of their research was assessed as world-leading or internationally excellent in REF 2021. The impact of this research is felt around the world. Visit qub.ac.uk to find out how Queen's University Belfast is bringing research to reality.
2: This is the last interview we have, highlighting a talk from the annual meeting, which concluded during the second week of February, I'm here with Varun Rai, a professor in the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We're going to talk about how to develop a more resilient energy grid. Thanks so much for joining me, Varun.
3: Thank you for having me, Megan.
2: Of course. And as we mentioned, you are based in Texas, which is a great starting point for what we can talk about. There was a major power crisis that happened in February of 2021 in your state from a winter storm. Could you talk about what happened there?
3: There was a very cold snap that came in and that basically led to a widespread blackout, eventually leading to about four and a half million households and businesses losing power for hours, in many cases, days, and in my case, actually over a week. Oh, wow. And led to hundreds of deaths and tens of billions, if not by some accounts, hundreds of billions of dollars of economic damages.
2: Was this a crisis that people like you, other researchers were aware that could happen and we're preparing for?
3: As researchers, we are always thinking about what could go wrong. We had faced something of a similar nature, I wouldn't say the same scale, in 2011 and 89 and you know, decades before that. So this was not an unknown problem. Now, you know, the scale of this basically astounded everybody and led to the discovery of many different inefficiencies across the system.
2: You mentioned that similar cold snaps, not to this extent that happened in 2021, had happened previously. Were there changes that were made based off of those experiences? Or I guess it was more like this is a very rare thing that happens. And so, you know, changing so much of the grid to accommodate this is not worth it.
3: Much of the latter, Megan. So there was a lot of discussion right after things happened in 2011. So it was serious, but it didn't lead to serious policy or regulatory changes. It didn't lead to deep changes in the infrastructure or changes in the guide rails that drive the market.
2: Do you feel like this time it's different, that there's a different tone and more action hopefully that'll happen?
3: This had a huge impact on the industry. There are many, many people who made a lot of money, but also many people who lost a lot of money. There are many Cities and munis that went bankrupt. There are many CEOs that were fired. That certainly has led to a very different level of attention to this event. And it has led to some proactive thinking, some important decisions that certainly are headed in the right direction. But still, there's a lot more work to be done, and the story is not complete.
2: The hope is that it doesn't take such a catastrophic event to kind of initiate the change that you need to prepare for these things. Texas definitely isn't alone in experiencing extreme weather, definitely happening all around the world. I'm curious if you could talk about the various ways that climate change might pose a risk to the energy grid.
3: Totally. And, you know, we are seeing it play out in different ways. Increased frequencies of extreme events, including hurricanes and tornadoes, what it means in terms of cold spells moving further south, which is what we saw in Texas was perhaps linked to. We should be expecting more and more disturbances to the grid here and elsewhere in the future. and so the name of the game is how do you act as a state as a community as a country globally both to mitigate those impacts on climate so basically reduce those frequencies of extreme events nonetheless you know you will face that either through the natural system or through the human physical system right you know for example cyber attacks and cyber infrastructure how do you then prepare for those types of events and that's basically the broader notion of energy security and resilience
2: So we talked a lot about how extreme weather climate change can impact energy grids. And you also did mention cyber attacks. So what are the other types of risks that energy grids kind of around the world are facing right now?
3: Cyber is a big thing for two reasons. One is with increasing digitization of our energy infrastructure, including how consumers use different technologies, but then also different sensors in the transmission distribution supply chain systems. So just of sheer fact that the nature of the infrastructure itself has changed. And so there are going to be many more access points, if you will. Much of that is going to be connected. And the moment things are connected, there are going to be vulnerabilities and there are going to be rogue actors all the time. Second thing is, you know, I mean, we can take the current invasion of Ukraine by Russia as an example, and, you know, how different types of actors basically interact with the system to different ends. And in, in some cases, you know, very, very difficult and nefarious. And in those cases, such type of an infrastructure could really be leveraged for mean purposes. There's
2: so many things, obviously, that can go wrong. But I guess let's turn around the interview a little bit. Your research also centers on the ways that we can create better systems, right? The way we can make things more resilient and handle these threats. What to you are like the hallmark features of a resilient energy grid system?
3: It needs to start with resilience to what? Is it that new technologies are coming in and with them, are there new types of variability or new types of uncertainties that are coming? So, you know, you can talk about storage or carbon capture and storage or hydrogen. What does that mean and what type of resilience do we get or do we lose? Second, we talked about cyber a little bit. What about supply chain disruptions? We saw a lot of that happening during COVID and you know, some of that is continuing. And we are seeing that as we speak happen because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. These are all very, very coupled things. And one cannot just say, okay, we want to be resilient to cyber attacks or we want to be resilient to forest fire. It's a complex system and requires multi-level integrated planning. Now, in terms of more concrete steps, we should really be planning for the future and not the past. And the key thing to keep in mind there is that the world needs and is on the path to electrify more of its energy system. But exactly how that happens and in the role of natural gas and CCS and nuclear But it's not a cookie-cutter approach that works everywhere. There's a lot of heterogeneity across the world and differences in condition and resources. So we need to acknowledge that and build redundancy into the system. Be ready with contingencies when things go wrong. The second thing I would propose is making electricity systems more efficient, not just the technologies. Often we focus on efficiency of technologies, for example, buildings and cars. And that's all really good and important, but only part of the solution. These technologies operate within a larger sociopolitical institutional complex. One key lesson that emerged in the aftermath of the Texas crisis is how integrated and coordinated the system is, leading to many defects in the overall system design. It could really be crippling during times of shocks. The third thing is building systems that not only solve current problems, but also are less likely to create major new problems. Thinking around alternative solutions, thinking around research and development, around redundancy, these are fundamental tenets that we have to continue to work on no matter what. And then our last two points, keep in mind that this is all for the people and by the people and to engage communities. The history of energy over the last couple centuries and much longer is basically writ with a lot of injustice and inequity. And this is a great opportunity as we try to transition the system and build a more resilient system to really be a lot more inclusive. And the final thing I think, which is very important, which is keeping to experiment and learning about the system. The grid is a highly complex socio-technical system. And with more electrification, including in transportation and the industrial sector, it's set to become even more complex. And so we should be humble about our understanding about such systems and always strive to learn more about its nature.
2: Yeah, your presentation really laid out well these different tenets that you have for how to build this more resilient energy grid. And one of the interesting things I thought was when you talked about Increasing the efficiency of systems, I would think. So there's less energy lost, you know, from point A to point B, like getting in. But it's really interesting to think about increasing efficiency of systems, not just for the actual energy, but also like what's going on in the government. Exactly. How we like communicate when there's outages and stuff. Could you talk more about how that was kind of a big reason why things went wrong in Texas?
3: I researched these issues, but during the Texas power crisis of February 2021, I was also a customer and family member, and there was very little that we were communicated to about in terms of what to expect. Even during the event, there's very little visibility in terms of what to expect, how to behave, how to plan for, how long this will last, and all the different entities who are responsible to manage these types of interactions were basically pointing fingers to each other, which were just so extremely unhelpful and indicative a very poor planning poor integration poor anticipation of the impacts these types of events can have but then also what real responsibility and taking care of the community and the people is and that's really to my point in terms of thinking about more efficient design of systems is not just the technologies but also how do things get communicated who plans for different things and If there are different parts of the market and different parts of technologies and different market actors that need to interact, what are the frameworks within which they interact? When things go really wrong, what happens to prices? Who pays for them? And do we have rainy day funds? And when do we bring them in? These are all matters of transparency, accountability, institutional efficiency and linkages and integration, which are very important parts of the larger system. And keeping an eye on all of them is equally, if not actually more important than the numeric technical efficiency.
2: Obviously, communities are involved as the consumer, you know, receiving the energy, but also in a lot of communities, people are energy producers, right? This creates jobs. I'm curious what your thoughts are on engaging with communities to make it so that the energy grid is more inclusive and it's not kind of shutting out communities.
3: We have to be realistic and honest in terms of where we are. And we are here riding on the back of great success that fossil fuels have had in this world. We should all, with truest of our hearts, be thankful to all the workers who have to make that happen. And and even with that, we also need to be honest about the science and the changes that need to be made. But these are not exclusive things. We can acknowledge the goods of the past and also look to the future. And to your point, Megan, absolutely. Something we absolutely we do not want to do is you know, leave any of our neighbors and any of our friends and workers or the transitioning industries, but rather take and invest in them proactively and transition them and make them an integral part because they have the skill. They know the system much better than in anybody else. That is not the issue in my view. That really is the opportunity, but also a responsibility. So that is very central. I just cannot imagine a successful transition. That can be sustained for decades and that can really be successful without directly investing in and transitioning even the people and making them an integral part of the. World.
2: You've laid out this really interesting framework for how to think about a resilient energy grid. I'm curious if you have an example of an area or a country that's really like leading the way here.
3: A great example of that would be how some countries in Europe are beginning to think. It's really interesting, even within that region how different countries like, you know, Denmark and some neighboring countries are approaching this. And for example, in the U.S., California is approaching this and has been a leader in this space for the last decade. What California did for solar about 15 years ago, now, you know, they have similar thinking and aggression in terms of the role of storage. At Texas, really, I mean, the challenge is that we had last year and in other challenges aside, it really is that extremely rich ground for that. I mean, this is the largest wind producing state by far in America and solar is growing so faster it will dwarf in all other installations in other parts of America. And of course, a big oil and gas hub here, a lot of opportunities for hydrogen, a lot of opportunities for geothermal and a huge growing population. So the demand is here, all kinds, all the way from residential to commercial to industrial, And so right there, you have a microcosm of all the different innovations, as well as supplying and really being innovative in different parts of the demand system as well. I think interesting experiences are happening, but it's still a little too early to point to one system and say, you know, that's what we should be replicating.
2: Varun Rai is the Walton Elspeth Rothschild professor in the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. The work we discussed was presented at the AAAS Annual Meeting as part of a panel on energy grid resilience. You can find more information about this panel and the rest of the annual meeting at meetings.aaas.org.
0: And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at science.org podcast or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi, with production help from Podigy and Megan Cantwell. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.